not to murder. You are not to steal. You are not to covet. Even the way that Paul summarizes this in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, has that same sort of negative flavor to it. That is, it's almost like you could read this section of text and think, what I need to do is to keep myself from doing stuff, and thereby I can fulfill the law by loving my neighbor. It doesn't take much before you get to that word wrong in verse 10 to notice that that word wrong is carrying an awful lot of freight. Perhaps you're not like me. I think that I don't remember particularly having this idea when I read Romans 13 earlier in my life, but it seems like something I would have thought. That the way in which you can fulfill this law is by simply not doing bad to people. It's perhaps the introvert in me, but that means that, you know, what Paul seems to be saying here is, I I can just keep my head down, I can mind my business, I can stay in my lane, I I don't... I don't need to to mess around with my neighbors. I don't need to mess around with the people around me as long as I keep my head down and I do what I'm supposed to do. In my quiet corner of the woods, I'm okay. So that I can lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way by my lonesome. After all, Paul does instruct us to do that. Let's just not make waves and we can fulfill what the law is calling for here. The question is, is that what the word wrong means here? When Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, is that all it means? To answer that, we can't just stay here and suppose that's what it means. We need to go to someplace else where we have this particular law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, exemplified for us. There is no greater place than our Lord. He wrote the law. He should be the one to tell us what that means. And in Luke 10, he does just this with the Good Samaritan. You all know the parable. There's a man who is going up to Jericho and he falls upon some robbers and they beat him, they rob him, they leave him for dead. And a priest and a Levite come by and they see the man and they pass along the side and they do not give him help. But a Samaritan comes by, the hated Samaritans, these half-breed people who just are not part of the Lord's people. And Jesus says, but that Samaritan, he stopped And he helped, and he gave comfort, and he gave aid, and he gave shelter, and he gave help to this man. Who then proved to be a neighbor? The answer is quite obviously the Samaritan did. At the end of all of that, Jesus is doing a couple of different things. But for our intents and purposes here, it's quite clear that you cannot simply keep your head down, stay in your lane, and think that you are doing no wrong to your neighbor. After all, that was the very thing that the priest and the Levite were able to say. That priest could pass alongside of him and look at the man bleeding on the side of the road there, see him and say, I didn't hurt him. I have done him no wrong. I'm simply passing along my way, and I I am not responsible for his problems and his issues. It's clear that Paul must mean more than simply avoiding doing harm to people. Doing wrong is also ignoring what good you can do for people. Because that's precisely what they ought to have done. They had the ability to help. They had the ability to do good. They had the ability to provide aid and comfort to one who needed it, and they passed by. They were not loving their neighbors as themselves. It is not enough simply to say, I'm not going to do bad to people. Jesus says, 
I think, I think, you have to be willing to do the good that you're able to do for your neighbors as well. That is what doing no wrong is. It is not simply ignoring and avoiding the harm that is done to people, but also not ignoring the good. To not harm your neighbor is indeed a good thing. To love him by actively serving him is better. This is why Paul says it's not that you ignore your enemies. When your enemy is thirsty, you don't say, oh, that's too bad, and then actively try to keep water from him. Or even say, that's too bad, and then don't bother with giving him water, but don't seek to take it away either. Paul's not calling for neutrality. Paul says, if your enemy is thirsty, do good to him. Give him water. If he's hungry, give him food. You are to actively seek to do good to people. Perhaps another question that might pop into your head, when you read through this, is how in the world did we end up in debt this way? What, what is it exactly about anything that's happened in your life or in my life that has led us to be in debt the way that Christ tells us through Paul that we are in debt? Why, why do we find ourselves talking like this? By the way, this isn't the first time that Paul has talked like this. Paul himself has mentioned that he is in debt to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and to foolish back in Romans chapter 1. He says that he is obligated to them. It's the same word that's used here. It's just translated a little differently. I think specifically that if we are the Lord's, we ought to do what the Lord does, and he has had compassion on us. But I think that there's something else at play as well. To illustrate this, I'm going to use another another parable of Jesus. Uh, I think he's a pretty good teacher, and so we should probably learn from him. Matthew 18 is the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the unforgiving servant has this massive amount of debt. It's, it, it's such a large number that our Lord picks, 10,000 talents. It is an unfathomable amount of money. We, we struggle to know how to translate that into modern dollars, but you can think of it as a billion dollars. This guy has racked up a billion dollars worth of debt. That's a lot of baseball cards. And I don't know exactly how he got himself into the debt, but, but the master is now calling it in. And he comes back to him, and obviously he doesn't have a billion dollars. And so he, he's threatened to be sold into slavery, him and his wife and his children. He's begging the master, and the master says, okay, okay, I hear you. The master does the unthinkable, and he forgives the debt. This gentleman then goes out and finds somebody else who owes him money. It should be stated it's not an insubstantial sum of money. A hundred denarii is about a hundred days worth of labor, Think of it as a pretty substantial sum. If we're going to say a billion for one, we're just kind of throwing out numbers. $10,000 is what this guy owes him. And the unforgiving servant goes to him and demands it from him. He says, you owe me $10,000. Perhaps he's out of a job now. Perhaps he's worried about the future. He says, you owe me $10,000. You've got to pay. And the man says, I don't have it. And he does exactly what the unforgiving servant had just done. He pleads. He says, don't throw me in jail. Just, just have mercy guy says no. Pretty soon it gets back to the king or the master. That this man did precisely this after being forgiven. And we can hear that. The master hears that. And he says, you are wicked. And he throws him in prison. There's no legal obligation to do that. The law doesn't say that what the gentleman did is uncouth. 
There's no logical connection between the two. Just because person A forgives a debt to you does not necessarily by logic mean that you have to forgive somebody else's debt. The deal is that compassion, love, mercy, forgiveness seem to have their own logic and their own calculations involved. They end up putting demands on you. Not to the one who has paid you. Isn't it interesting that neither in Romans 1 nor here does Paul say we are in debt to God to make sure that we love other people. That isn't what Paul says. But the love that Christ has shown to us puts us under obligation to them. It makes us obliged to them. It puts us in debt to them. The more you are loved, the more compassion is shown to you, the more you are forgiven, the more you have incumbent upon you to do the same to others. This is why he is calling us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Did you receive mercy? Yes, gladly. Did you receive forgiveness? Yes, gladly. Did you receive grace? Gladly. Then love your neighbor just like that. Give them mercy and grace. Give them forgiveness. Feed them when they're hungry. Give them drink when they're thirsty. This is our debt. And you have barely scratched the surface in talking about a debt even of a billion dollars when it comes to what Christ has done for us. And a man, perfect in all of his ways, who deserved nothing but life, receives our death when we deserve nothing but death and we receive his life. That is a, an act of grace and of mercy that is quite incalculable. And no number, no matter how big, no matter how large, no matter how grandiose you give to it, can ever possibly come to measure the gift of what Christ has done for those who trust and believe in him. If that is so, where ought our love end? How, how far should we push mercy and grace to our neighbors, to the people around us, and our acts of love and kindness to them? I think we are under a great deal of obligation to love those around us. That is a tough task. And so Paul encourages us by then talking about our second point, and that is the dawn. Paul starts to pile up metaphors here. The most important one coming in verse 14, which kind of mirrors one that comes in verse 12. He talks about putting on the armor of light in verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Usually when we talk about putting on Jesus Christ, we, we're kind of talking about how he justifies us, which is worth talking about. It's worth mentioning that that is quite often what we use when we're using a metaphor for what happens in justification. This is part of the picture of how Scripture speaks of God forgiving us. Nakedness and shame were tied very early on in Scripture. There's a good reason for this. Adam and Eve, naked before the fall. After the fall, when they have sinned, they realize that they are naked. They realize that they have shame, and so they cover it up. Now, the reason why they cover it up is because tied to the, the image of physically being naked in front of somebody is, is the same sort of embarrassment or the same sort of shame of, of having your soul unveiled before people. 
The two are clearly tied together. It's just a physical manifestation of the same shame when God will lay your soul bare. And so they try to cover themselves the same way we try to cover the sinful things that we do, the same way we cover the shameful things that we do, that we don't go around parading for everyone. We don't let people see the evil in our hearts. We don't let people know the temptations that we have. We don't let people see the the horrible hatred that kind of lurks in the back of who we are. We keep that closed. We keep it tight. As one commentator said, if you notice all, all those commandments, they have something in common. They're all things that people keep secret. They don't parade their adultery. They don't parade their murder. They hide their stealing. They don't speak about their coveting. This is why Paul says that this is the things that happen in the dark. Not just because these things typically happen at night, but because these things are hidden. They're kept secret. That's exactly what clothing does. Clothing covers you. And this is exactly why Adam and Eve were given clothing by God as a picture of what Jesus would do for us. The metaphor is the same. Just as you would be exposed and naked and everyone would see, that's what naked means. Everyone gets to see everything, right? That's what nakedness is. To do that to your soul is to expose your shame. God covers their naked bodies in the same way that he covers our shame with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when, when God comes to us, there is no shame. There is no sin. There is no wrong because we are clothed in Christ. It's really quite a beautiful picture of what God does for us. In the same way, when he comes to others who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, he exposes them. This is why in the Old Testament, quite often, the nations are exposed. Hosea, other uh, minor prophets, talk about pulling up the skirts of the nations to expose them because that's what God is going to do. He is going to lay them bare, body and soul. Christ covers us, which is great to speak of. We oftentimes think of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ as just that. But I don't think that's what Paul means here. I did want to cover that because it's an important metaphor in Scripture and I think it's worth talking about. But Paul doesn't quite mean that here. It's not a second coat of paint. He's not saying, hey, this happened to you once and now you kind of need to do it over again and over again and over again and over again. But clothing means more than just covering our nakedness. Clothing communicates things. John the Baptist in Matthew 3 had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. He didn't do that for fun, although perhaps he enjoyed camel's hair. He did it because it signified who he was. Because that same sort of garment and that same sort of belt was worn by Elijah in the Old Testament, the one who was to come before the coming day of the Lord. This is the same reason why Jesus is mocked with king's clothes. Because Purple robes and crowns were things that were worn by kings. It models him as a king and mocks him at the same time. It's exactly the same reason why Mordecai gets to wear the king's clothes when he is paraded around. It associates him with the king. And people would understand that simply by looking at him. You can know, if you went back to biblical times, who the Pharisees and Sadducees were by the way they dressed. You would know who the Roman soldiers were by the way they dress. I have no doubt. People have a pretty good guess. When I pull up to Wendy's on Sunday afternoon with a suit and tie on, they think, huh, he must have been at church. People can identify you based on how you dress. Not always, but it's at least a point of it. And this is what he's saying. Put on Christ. Let that be the thing that people see in you. Walk like him. Talk like him. Speak like him. Do the things that he calls for you to do. That is how you put on Christ. So that you make no provision for the the flesh. 
you're not sort of getting out of looking like Christ and acting like Christ. You, you don't get to say, well, this is the weakness of my flesh. Paul is urging you, put on Christ, act like him. Don't allow your flesh to lead you and strain you in any one direction that is unbiblical and unwise. This is what you ought to wear. And then Paul does this brilliant thing where he ties it to simply getting prepared for a day. He says, the night is at hand, but now the day is coming. You need to be prepared for the day. Each one of you got prepared for this day. You woke up this morning, maybe not before dawn, some of you before dawn. Knowing what was going to happen today, you got dressed and you prepared yourself for what was going to happen. That is precisely what Paul is telling us to do. Prepare yourselves. Get up. Get dressed. The dawn is about to come and you need to be ready and prepared for it. Paul is instructing us to walk like people of the day. We're people of the day because we don't have sinful actions that we, we are striving to do and keep secret. That's what people do at the night. That's what the night is great for. It's great for cover. Walk like people who have nothing to have covered up. Walk like people who know that they are holy and strive to be holy and strive to be right. Walk like people in the day where people can see the wrong that you do and you have to freely admit it. The interesting thing is that this reminds me quite a bit of Exodus 12. I don't think that Paul necessarily meant any connection to the passage, and I probably, because we're going to Exodus in, in a couple of months, have Exodus on my mind, but in Exodus 12, we read about the Passover, and we read these words as God is instructing Moses how to instruct the people when it comes to the Passover. In Exodus 12, verse 7, God tells Moses this, Israel shall take some of the blood of the lamb that they have just killed and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. Now remember, the Passover is probably beginning somewhere around six o'clock the evening before. It doesn't begin at midnight. They, they begin at sundown. Somewhere around 6 o'clock the night before. He says, this is how you should eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. The whole point is you, you're going to be ready. And you're going to be ready all night long. The angel of the Lord is going to come and it's going to visit Egypt and it's going to visit Israel. When it sees the blood on the doorpost, it's going to pass you over. But all night long, it's going to be taking the firstborn out of Egypt. But you need to be ready. You're going to be dressed and you're going to be ready because you're leaving in a hurry. You're leaving in haste because the day is coming. Salvation is here. This is exactly what Paul is telling us. Friends, you are to be ready for the coming of the Lord. You are to be prepared, as prepared as you can be. Get your belt fastened, get your walking shoes on, get the staff in your hand, and be ready to go because he's coming. He's coming. The way Paul speaks here, you can't help but think he's coming real soon. As a matter of fact, if you, if you put Paul's letters together and you hear how he talks about the coming of the Lord, you get the sense that Paul thought 10 years, 15 years, like within my lifetime, if you were to ask Paul, Notice he doesn't write it down. I think 
by the provision of the Holy Spirit. It's not written down. But you get the sense if you ask Paul, he'd be like, yeah, kind of. Like, I'm not going to tell you this as an apostle, but as a friend, yeah, probably within my lifetime. You, you get the sense of Paul was just, it's immediate. It's coming. And it's easy to like look at Paul and say, man, it's been 2,000 years, Paul. Like, this is worse than the guy who said back in the 80s that there is no household that will ever need a personal computer. Right? You were wrong. You're super wrong, Paul. 1,900 years have passed and still Jesus has not returned and you were talking back then like it was immediate. Yeah, well, this is by the good hand of God. There are problems with just telling us exactly when it's going to happen. Look what happens to people. They try to calculate it. God clearly has not told us when it's going to happen. Roy Camping back in, uh, two, or Harold Camping, excuse me, back in 2011 said, hey, May 21st is the day, friends. May 21st is gonna happen. May 21st came and the Lord didn't come and Harold was very disappointed. The, uh, I, I love the entry on his Wikipedia page. Camping emerged from his home on May 22nd saying he was flabbergasted that the rapture had not occurred. He stated that he was looking for answers and would say more when he returned to work on May 23rd. For some reason, I find it hilarious that he's like, I got to take the rest of the day off, but tomorrow it's back to the millstone. Like, no, no, just, just repent. Just, just repent and repent tomorrow too, man. Like, he says he's going to go back and do more calculations. Everybody who does this is doing calculations like 49 weeks and that's a year and we're going to work it out. And the amazing thing is no matter when they predict it, it's always in like a year. It's never like, it's going to be like 300 years, guys, so take it easy, right? It's always in their lifetime because it's got to be immediate to them. It's always a problem to give us the date. Scripture just never gives us the date. Perhaps his calculations should have led him to the book of Acts where Jesus says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. For some reason, they think it's for them to know. But I think there's a better reason why God doesn't give us the date. It's clear that he hasn't. If God told you, and you knew for certain it was in his word, five years from now, today, five years, that is when the Lord was going to return. I would, I would bet there's a couple of very diligent people in here who would be preparing for like five years for that event. The vast majority of the people in here if you were honest with yourselves, would procrastinate for about four years and 11 months. And then you would be all about getting ready, right? Clean the house, make sure everything's in order, make sure you're set and ready to go, right? There is a brilliance in the Lord saying, I'm about to come, but I'm not going to tell you when. Because the about to come thing means that we need to know he's coming, it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God, and he says it because he doesn't see the judgment of God in the world. This is why God continually refers to the fact that he's coming. He continually tells us, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Wait for the day. It might seem like I'm not. First Peter says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, the things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Every day looks the same. And God says, no, I'm coming, but I'm not going to tell you when. Because you'd just procrastinate, you would just put it off. And this way, you're always working at being prepared. It is a gift of God that we don't know when that time is. The closeness of the Lord is not meant to make us fear. It's not so that we can look at our kids and say, would you be wanting to be found like that when the Lord returns? But it's meant to give us heart. It's meant to encourage us. Friends, today, today, you are one day closer to salvation. 
today, you are one day closer to the Lord returning. And that return could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be a week from now. It might be 300 years from now. But it could be soon. And you're closer to it. Each moment that passes, you're closer to it. It's meant to help us, to remind us of his goodness, calling us to persevere. So push through. Fight sin that pushes in on your heart. Keep the faith that has been proclaimed to you and that you have proclaimed. Don't be dismayed by the events of the world and don't be anxious about the events of your life. Today, we know that the dawn is closer. And how much closer is it from the day of Paul? You can press on. You can fight the good fight. You can put up with one more day. You can love your enemies. You can love those who hate you. You can strain and to stretch yourself because you know that that day is coming and is coming very soon. So put on Christ. Walk faithfully. Wait for the deliverance of God. Let us arise from our slumber. Let's put armor on and hear for those who have ears to hear the call of Christ, our captain. Let's pray. Father, help us to live rightly in light of the day. Indeed, darkness is around us, and it's easy to give in to that darkness. But this is nothing more than our being conformed to the world. Help us to live as people of the light, to be prepared for the coming of your kingdom, and to wear Christ as an armor of glorious light. As you have commanded, so bring it to pass, that we might be holy as you are holy. We ask this for your glory and for our good. Amen. If you would, stand and sing with us our hymn or our song of response, O Church Arise.